Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our series in the book of Daniel, and here we'll be having a discussion of the second portion of Daniel chapter 5 and Belshazzar's Feast. We want to make you aware and invite you to our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. This will be a two-day conference on July 19th and July 20th. And at this conference, we're going to learn from Scripture and address such issues as the fracturing of American evangelicalism, the challenges of church planting, and the demands of pastoral leadership. Speakers at this year's conference will be Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and Theopolis Fellows. For more information about this upcoming conference, there is a link in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording and smoothing out everything, editing. We're in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Daniel. And uh, in the last episode, we looked at the first part of Daniel 5, which is the story of Belshazzar's feast. You may have seen the painting, Rembrandt's famous painting of Belshazzar startled by the inscription that's being written by a disembodied hand on the wall. And um, we looked at the first part where uh, initially Belshazzar is confused, fearful. He calls in his wise men and his conjurers and his Chaldeans, and they can't interpret the inscription. They've been unable to interpret anything through the whole course of the book of Daniel. Then the queen comes in and reminds him of Daniel and uh, Daniel's wisdom, the fact that he has the spirit of the holy gods in him, and that uh, Daniel is can interpret, uh, he can untie this knot, as uh, as the queen says. And we ended with Daniel's appearance in the uh, in the court, in this festival hall, in the midst of this festival. Uh, Alistair reminded us right after we finished last episode that uh, we're seeing something of a replay of a series of events that happens in the first part of the book of Samuel, when the Philistines capture the ark and take it into the house of Dagon, their god, and that Dagon keeps falling down, bowing down, prostrating himself before the ark, the throne of Yahweh. And then the ark is taken from city to city, and everywhere it goes, there's an outbreak of plagues until the Philistines decide that it's uh, they don't want to have this ark around them anymore and send it back to Israel. So you have a similar kind of thing going on here where the vessels of the temple are brought out into this feast. Uh, and uh, I think James said right at the beginning of our series of uh, podcasts on Daniel, he talked about uh, the, the vessels that are mentioned right at the beginning of Daniel as a kind of depth charge. You forget about them as you're reading the book of Daniel, but they're there. Uh, they're there in Babylon. And if they get abused, if God's stuff gets abused, then God is going to take vengeance against those who abuse it. And that's coming to a, coming to a head here uh, in the Feast of Belshazzar. I wish I could do a Rod Serling voice because I would do it like a, the, the beginning of a Twilight Zone episode. And I would say something about, we're entering into the deep weird led by James B. John. Because James has done really interesting, brilliant work on interpreting the inscription that's on the, uh, I, I mean, Daniel interpreted, but is explaining how Daniel interpreted the inscription that's put on the wall of this festival hall. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, you have James B. John taking us into the deep weird later in this very episode of the Theopolis podcast. But before we get there, uh, we have Daniel show up. 
Daniel has this exchange with uh, Belshazzar, the king, who offers him this elevation if, if he's able to interpret the inscription. Daniel refuses that. And then he gives what's really, I think, a double speech in verses 18 through 28. The first one begins in verse 18 with where he's addressing the king, Belshazzar, but he's addressing the king and giving a, a review of what Nebuchadnezzar did and what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That's in verses 18 through 21. And then verse 22, he again directly addresses Belshazzar, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, and then he applies the lesson that Belshazzar should have learned from the experience of Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. So you have these somewhat parallel speeches, which I think kind of helps us understand the setting, at least for the inscription that's on the on the wall, because what's being set up here is a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this uh, great kingdom, and he's humbled until he acknowledges God. Belshazzar knew this, and he didn't humble himself, uh, and so he's going to lose his kingdom. So that the the whole speech kind of sets you up for the interpretation of the inscription that comes at the end in verses twenty five through twenty eight. I wonder what you guys think about Belshazzar's initial description of things to Daniel when he's brought in in verse thirteen onwards. I was thinking about this a bit more as I was going through this for for the podcast, and I, I was thinking, what do you think the scene was exactly, and and how much do you think? Belshazzar actually told Daniel of what had happened. So in verse 15, it's just spoken about as like this this writing. You know, um, there's he doesn't tell Daniel anything about how it got there um, or the temple vessels being brought out beforehand. Or And you can see in a sense why he wouldn't. I mean, he's wanting Daniel to do him a favour, right? And, and so having these kind of abused and blasphemed temple vessels filled with wine all over the place you, you could imagine he might have cleared them up and hidden them away or, or or something but i don't know if that's kind of reading too much into it um if it is then when daniel mentions in verse um where is it 23 which he does yeah almost at the as his address is sort of coming to a um a climax you could imagine then that sort of belshazzar would know that the game is up when daniel mentions the vessels himself um but it, it does seem quite interesting that belshazzar, belshazzar doesn't mention that um w- when he introduces daniel to the situation yeah and as you're pointing out james he doesn't either where the, it doesn't mention where the inscription came from it's like you know could be could be graffiti for all that he says about uh, about the inscription uh nothing about this um the hand that uh comes out of nowhere and has, it's the uncanny appearance of the inscription. It's not just the thing, the fact that there's something written there, but it's the fact that the fingers of a man, man's hand and the hand is seen in verse, back in verse five, that's what makes the king fall apart and uh, become terrified. So, but he, yeah, he leaves that out. That's a, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't noticed that was left out. And Daniel underlines the importance of the hand by, in verse 23, saying, the God in whose hand is your breath. It's that same hand that has written the words. Right. And all that, I guess, would confirm to the hearers of Daniel's interpretation that what he's saying is is right, you know, because Daniel doesn't know, you know, as, as far as people are concerned, Daniel doesn't know that this is going to be a message of judgment, which it quite clearly is if they've just got 
Yahweh's vessels out and they're drinking from them. This is obviously going to be a God who's not happy with what's going on. And so when Daniel read it out as a message of judgment, it would presumably ring a bell with people and, and they would know that his interpretation of it was was the right one. It, it's not going to be some, um, you know, very uh, positive sort of happy-go-lucky message that's, that's read out here. Right. I mean, back in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar deliberately sets up a test when he has had a dream, but he won't reveal the dream because he wants his, uh, his wise men to be able to tell him the dream and the interpretation as a test that they were actually, they actually had insight into the interpretation rather than making something up. Um, and it's so, almost like Belshazzar, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be deliberate, but it's as if he sets up the same kind of test for Daniel. And yet Daniel knows the things that he hasn't been told about the situation that, uh, yeah, you're right, that that confirms the fact that he's interpreting uh, accurately because he's he's able to have insight into the total situation, not simply uh, be able to interpret the letters that are there. What should we make about the act of writing with the hand? Um, It's not just the words that cause an effect. It's the actual means by which the words come there. writing with one's hand is not something that you see often within scripture, certainly not a hand that's come from God. Um, Maybe think about examples of handwriting in the curse that's written in the test of jealousy in Numbers chapter 5. Most notably, the Lord writes the law on the tablets of stone with his own hand. Um, What should we make about the, the sign of the handwriting? Yeah, I think the Sinai connection is uh, is there. I don't I don't know exactly how to tease it out, but the fact that it's the fingers of a man's hand that appear in verse five that's doing the writing, and it's by the finger of God that uh, that he he inscribes the law on the tablets of stone. I think there's there's some kind of connection there, but I I don't know how to how to tease that out. I mean, you could also connect it with uh, John chapter 10, as some commentators have done, Jesus inscribing something on the, in the dust when, the, when he's before the woman taking an adultery. Again, it's hard to know what to do with that connection, but there's, a, there's a, at least a, a, there's a similarity in the scene with uh, God writing something, which is, as you, as you said, Alistair, is, is a fairly rare thing in Scripture. There certainly does seem to be a connection with authority. I think the term writing or in, inscribing here is, is the same term that's used in the next chapter in terms of the sort of indelible um, injunction of the Medes and Persians. And so it it seems that kind of, yeah, that there is a, a statement of the sort of in, yeah indelibility of, of what God has decreed here. Well, what do you guys make of the... Um, kind of the way in which Belshazzar addresses Daniel in 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 the first place when he's talking about you know I've heard the spirit of the gods is in you is he trying to sort of butter him up you know and when he talks about Daniel as the one whom the king my father brought from Judah is, is that is he trying to suggest that Daniel should have some loyalty to Belshazzar I, I'm just wondering it's not it's not much of a command is it um i mean daniel when he was brought in before nebuchadnezzar um basically was going to be killed unless he he, uh, unless he obeyed and had to seek an audience himself but there seems to be a real 
reversal of the tables here. I, I maybe I'm misreading it, but I'm getting the feeling very much that Belshazzar kind of uh, needs this favour from Daniel and hasn't got much to offer him. Him and he's trying to sort of cajole, cajole him rather than anything else. Yeah. So the the reversal is the reversal in their relative power. Is that what you're saying? Uh, it's as if uh, Belshazzar is uh, is in a subordinate position to Daniel rather than the opposite. If it feels like it to me, what, what do you yeah. think? And also his old age gives him, the king a lot less leverage over um, Daniel. Rewards just don't mean so much at that age, nor do threats. Right. right. In which case, maybe verse 19, when Daniel emphasises, you know, the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar and how he killed who he wanted and say spared who he wanted. Do you think that could be uh, emphasising the fact that Belshazzar is, is quite a weak king by means of comparison, um, perhaps because he's only a co-regent anyway, but per- perhaps there is a, a, a kind of yeah weakness to him or, or a decline that's taken place? Yeah, that seems to be the implication to me, as, uh, especially, I mean, the, the language Daniel uses of Nebuchadnezzar's power is uh, pretty remarkable because he's attributing him the power over life and death, which is a divine power. He's got the power to elevate and to humble, which is again, a power that's attributed to God. That's in fact, at the end of chapter four, that's what Nebuchadnezzar has confessed about the God of heaven, that he's the one who raises up and lowers. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, and and then uh, immediately uh, Daniel goes on to talk about, Belshazzar and he doesn't Belshazzar has no accomplishments the only thing that he talks about with Belshazzar's uh, reign is his abuse of the temple vessels in this feast so I think yeah the the setting up a a pretty sharp contrast between the two kings but I wonder too if uh, it it does seem like Daniel's in a position uh, I think Alistair is right that Daniel's age it plays a role here but I also think that it's it's probably Daniel Daniel is a, a dominating figure in the whole scene. Once he enters the whole, the whole scene changes and the king is either speaking to him, perhaps cajoling him, or Daniel is just stating things that are going to be the case. It's as if he's, he's become the, uh, he's, he's speaking the Lord's words directly. And I think it's interesting to contrast the way Daniel responds to this inscription with the way he responds to Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, back in chapter two. There, he's at right at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he's at the beginning of his uh, position in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And he goes, prays and fasts. He enlists other people to pray and fast, and he pleads with the God of heaven, and the God of heaven reveals something to him. It's almost as if that gap between Daniel and the God of heaven has closed. And now Daniel, because he has the spirit of the holy God in him, is able to speak almost directly the judgments of God, which, you know, that's what you're saying, James, about uh, the way that Belshazzar deals with him would fit with that, that he's he's treating him as, he, as if he's an oracle, that he can directly speak the words of God and, and showing him that kind of, um, at least that kind of fear or some kind of respect, perhaps. Right. It, it reminds me to some extent of the power dynamic between Jesus and Pilate and the way in which the sort of, order in which you would expect from an outsider's um, perspective is, is very much reversed there. As I was looking at verse 21, I think 
it's true to say that this mention of the wild donkeys, mm -hmm. I don't think that appears in chapter four. Um, no. So, yeah, I'd be grateful to know if, if either of you have thoughts on, on what's going on there. I don't. It is different. I'll offer you... <laughs> I, I can offer you I can offer you great rewards and and third third position in my church if you can <laughs> tell me what the donkeys are well, about. Well, in that case, <laughs> that is an addition that's not mentioned in chapter four. Uh, the other things are mentioned. Uh, I mean, the, not everything that's in chapter four is mentioned here. It doesn't talk about his his hair growing out like eagles' mm. hair. Um, but uh, the wild donkeys is a is a new thing here, and uh, I don't have any. I don't have any insightful things to say about why it's included. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe we could say this: uh, the at least it's emphasizing the how far Nebuchadnezzar is excluded from human uh, from human life. Eating grass like cattle—that's uh, cattle is usually domesticated animals. You think of you think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar as being kind of in the vicinity of Babylon, even if he's not living in the city, but in dwelling places with the wild donkeys puts him out. Um, far outside of uh, the range of civilization, so perhaps at least that—that that it's uh, just a further emphasis on how how low uh, the Lord took him. It's the way Ishmael is described in Genesis chapter sixteen. Um, he'll be yeah. a wild donkey of a man, um, mm. and there it's his isolation from all others and the way that his hand is against theirs and theirs is against him. Right, right. That seems to be how. A wild donkey is used as an image in Job, particularly, doesn't it? Um, that it's this when, when it talks about uh, the natural order as very separate from man and from man's activities. Of course, that's that's the story that uh, Daniel's telling here. He's telling the story of Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, but then uh, verse twenty, a turning point when he lifts up his heart and his spirit becomes proud, and he's deposed from his throne, his glory is taken from him, and he's driven away from mankind. And you have uh, this series of clauses that describe a descent uh, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, until verse twenty-one, the reversal, and he recognizes the God, that Most High God is ruler. Uh, that's the storyline that uh, that high elevation and his humbling, and then his return uh, when he recognizes God. That's what Belshazzar should have been paying attention to, and he didn't. Uh, Daniel assumes and, and accuses uh, uh, Belshazzar of knowing this, verse 22, uh, and yet he doesn't uh, humble himself before the God of heaven as his ancestor did. You mentioned the contrast with chapter 4, Peter, and um, there, before Daniel gives his interpretation, he says something like, doesn't he, um, let not the dream be for you, Nebuchadnezzar, but let it concern your enemies instead. But there, there's nothing of that here. And that, that feels significant to me. I almost feel that the time for repentance in terms of Belshazzar's life is been and gone. I get the impression this is very much now an announcement of what, what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so we sort of have a similar situation to Chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar kind of gathered his whole kingdom and wanted to uh, celebrate his unity and kind of unite people. And it turned out to be a stage that he had constructed for God to show 
his greatness and to show the uniqueness and loyalty of his own servants whom he was able to control and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't. It feels like there's something similar here. Belshazzar has invited um, the thousand, hasn't he? They're his, his great ones and his lords. So he has gathered a, a big crowd, presumably, to um, yeah, flaunt his greatness in some way, or at least his lack of concern of uh, his imagined impregnability. Mm. And um, yeah, God is going to rework that scene and, and use that audience to show Daniel's um, greatness and, and Babylon's fallibility and, and stupidity. Mm-hmm. Again, it's reminiscent of the story of Samson, um, another act of seeming triumph that proves to be um, the means of a group's destruction. Right, right, which has the same temple setting, doesn't it? Well, what are we to make of this hand exactly? I'm just looking at verse 24, and it talks about from his presence so from god from before god i guess that the hand was was sent forth um which seems seems interesting well for, first thing to notice is that uh, daniel knows about the hand too even though belshazzar hasn't mentioned it he knows about the drinking vessels huh. and the, the, the sacrilege but now he knows that there's a hand that the that wrote out the inscription um and yeah hmm. the it's it's almost like the uh, is it is it the case that this is the, the the language that's typically used for the sending of a messenger, like an angel being sent out from God, some mm-hmm. kind of yeah. some kind of some kind of mediator that uh, that brings uh, brings God's word to people? Hmm. I mean, and you do have uh, at least if you look at the canon, generally you have uh, connections between um, hand or finger in particular and uh, the persons of. Uh, persons of the Godhead. So Jesus uh, drives out demons by the finger of God, uh, which is interpreted in another gospel as the as the Spirit. He drives out by the Spirit of God. And I think you know the the same kind of analogy when you're talking about the the writing on the tablets. You have the the finger of God writes on the tablets of stone at Sinai. The finger Spirit of God writes on the tablets of the human heart, according to Paul, and puts the law in our hearts. Second Corinthians three. So you have some associations of an, an extension of God's own, uh, God's power, but it's God himself who is sent out, as it were, uh, as the hand or the finger in order to accomplish something. We've remarked upon the importance of certain temple imagery here. What should we make of the lampstand in this front? The lampstand itself does seem to have some associations with the hand. Um, in Solomon's temple, there are five on each side on the south side and then on the north. Um, the position of the lampstand is also something that's mentioned in Exodus chapter 40 as things are being set up. It's opposite the table. Um, the details of the situation of the lampstand and its relationship to the hand suggest that there's more going on there than um, merely a bit of historical verisimilitude. There's maybe some significance to those details. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, well, one thing we could think about with the lampstand perhaps is the way, and I think James Jordan mentions this in his commentary, the the way in which it at least visually resembles a a set of scales where kind of three arms on one side and three on the other side where it's sort of inviting some comparisons to be made between three weights and three 
other things. And that, I think, plays very much into the whole many, many tackle passing um, riddle and, and the way in which weights work there. But um, presumably there's there's the idea of uh, things being illuminated too. I can't see... I can't find it exactly now, but um, Daniel is associated with light, isn't he? Um, where, where is that? Uh, verse 11? Yes. Maybe um, light uh, an understanding. I, I wonder almost if Daniel is is this sort of human vessel or more particularly a, a, a human lampstand who is going to sort of shed light upon the uh, uh, the writing in that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, James, you're the one who finally uttered the riddle, um, and we we promised everyone a, a journey into the deep weird with James B. John. So uh, let me start simple. Um, the you have uh, Daniel read out this inscription in verse 25. Um, is that something the wise men didn't recognize? Could they have read that much of it and just not known what it meant, or could they not even make out? those that sequence of words do you think yeah i don't know i mean i can't help but feel but that after your um introductions peter this is all going to be a big anti-climax um in parks i'm not sure i remember that that well (laughs) what i've i've said about this in the past but um uh i mean perhaps one thing to bear in mind is that um unless this was written in cuneiform um so in babylonian um symbols um it almost certainly wouldn't have had um vowels supplied with it so um i, I know you guys know this but sort of for the benefit of other uh, listeners and, and so on um aramaic or or hebrew or other languages at the, at the time were basically written in um consonants and so just being shown um some writing would be pretty similar to be to just being shown a, a bunch of consonants um, in English without any spaces between them either. And while if you got something like a text message and it was written um, like that and you knew who had written it and the context, you could kind of fill in the gaps. You can well imagine that if you just had 15 characters completely devoid of context, you actually wouldn't be able to read them out as it, as it were you wouldn't be able to supply the right vowels so and, and and then get a coherent sense from them and um i don't find it implausible that some wise men could have been brought in and it could have been said to them you know read and interpret it and i don't find it implausible that they could have said well, we're not able to read this you know which could mean yeah we can't supply the the right vowels and and get something plausible out of this um obviously when you read and solve a riddle it, it's meant to have this plausibility to it. it it's it's meant to tie up all the loose ends and get something that that makes sense and i can well imagine wise men would have thought we we, we just can't can't do this in, a, in one of his articles on this chapter, Al Walters uh, rearranges the letters. I mean, there's no, there's no obvious reason to divide it up into these particular words, as you're saying, because there aren't any spaces between the words. And so he comes up with possible translations, things like 
who has caused Persia to stumble? That's one way to arrange the letters. Or whoever you are, Persia is insignificant. Or I like this one. He said, if you rearrange the letters in a particular way, it means crush whoever has been peeled. <laughs> Which, I, you know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you can see why a wise man would be confused if he read that part, <laughs> read it out in that in that. So, so, so you think it's it's plausible that they can't even read it, much less interpret what it means? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, um, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's plausible that, that that they just couldn't make make easy sense of it. I mean, often when um, messages are sent from one king to another in the ancient world, and when, when we have the tablets on on which that they were written. Um, Often they begin with a command which says, "Read this," and it seems as if the um, the command was issued to the messenger himself, so that the messenger would take the tablet to a king and then read it out. And in the act of reading it, all the ambiguity would be clarified. I mean. I said just now that vowels wouldn't be supplied if it was written in the Babylonian's normal form of writing. But actually, in Babylonian writing, different symbols can have all sorts of different um, meanings anyway. And and so, I mean, although probably in English we don't think of this a a great deal, um, writing is never able to capture the full information content of reading. And so we introduce things like italics to emphasize stress. But even then, I mean, there's so much in our speech, which just isn't conveyed in in writing and, and can't be conveyed. There's always going to be a lot of information. You, you don't get where the emphasis is or what the particular tone is or speed or, or, or flow or, or, or anything. And, and so it's worth bearing in mind that when something like that is is read there there's a performative aspect to it but there's also a huge sense of clarification that when you're actually able to read something um that you're you are providing extra information to writing paul sanger has a fascinating book spaces between words where he talks about the development of spaces between words in western texts around, I think it was around the 10th century from Irish scribes. And before that, most Latin texts in the West were written with no spaces between words. Because when you don't have that many texts, you read things slowly and each reading is an oral performance to be practiced for in the same way as you practice a musical piece before performing it. So you'd read and interpret a piece and without the spaces, and then you'd perform it at some later point, having worked it out and understood it. Right. And and that presumably in a society which was, I don't know about largely illiterate, but even had a lot of illiterate people in it, that presumably would be how a lot of letters would be communicated. I'm, I'm guessing that Paul's letters to churches would have been read out in this communal, in this communal way. So Dan, one of the first thing Daniel does then is to... Uh, determine what the specific words are, but recognizing that there's a uh, recognize the order of the words. And and the original one is many many tekel ufarsin in verse twenty five. When he interprets it, it's just one many tekel and then perez, which is a little bit different from ufarsin. 
but the the original the original list of terms is a series of of weights, as as I understand the your your uh, discussion of this, James and others. Amina, a shekel, which could sometimes sometimes be called a pronounced as tekel, and then a, a paris or a, I don't know what the what the uh, what the word would be, but it's a, that would be a half mean. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so this would be sort of probably two of them. Right. So yeah, the ufarsin is plural. So you, you originally have uh, mm. you originally have a just reading them out without the interpretation that he offers. He's listing a series of weights that are used to weigh out commodities that you're selling. It, it's used also to weigh out the amount of uncoined metal, gold or silver, that you're using to purchase the what you're what you're selling, uh, what you're buying. And so th- there's it's putting it in the, the the initial reading out of these terms is just putting it in the context of weights and measures, uh, and therefore in the context of a kind of scale. Uh, and obviously, in the in the larger context, there's going to be a scale of justice uh, that uh, God is weighing something out and uh, and assessing and judging it, um, judging it both in the sense of making a determination about it, about its value, and then also judging in the sense of carrying out something that's appropriate to its value. So, at least the the initial the initial words puts us in that zone of consideration. Yeah, and and so immediately as Daniel started reading it, you would immediately get the sense that there is some coherence to this. Um, as I think you were saying, Peter, you could divide up these letters in in so many different ways. Um, and I mean, the M and N at the start, you could quite easily uh, relate to sort of from or something, especially if this is a, a message. You, you then have like an Aleph and another M and an N, which is are the letters behind sort of amen and you could sort of think of that as truth or or anything and and so as soon as daniel started reading this out and you get this series of weights i think it would be clear that there was there was some coherence behind this and and daniel is is ordering and, and making sense out of this this stream of consonants on a, on a wall so and and then the question is to um, make a move from that initial list of weights and measures to the the interpretation that Daniel gives in verses 26 through 28. I mean, you could say that it's he's uh, taking these words and he's receiving some kind of divine inspiration to understand. When, and not only should could say that, but you should say that because he's a he has God's spirit within him, and that's what gives him the capacity to do this. There's also some kind of there's some kind of logic in the way that he moves from the initial list of weights and measures to the sentences that he uses to summarize uh, sentences of the that are that are being communicated by these words so in James I know I don't know if you remember but I know that you have tried to tried to tease out what the logic is how he's moving from those initial words into into the uh, into the statements that are the prophecy right yeah I mean th- there's a nice um uh, threefoldness which I guess underlines it all so Daniel picks out three different, um, let's call it sort of three-letter roots from um, the consonants he's read out. So he picks out the roots mene, or the words mene, tekel, and perez, all of which consist of three letters, and then the the vowels are are filled in in a very sort of standard 
fashion. And I mean, it's just with an E as we have it in English, which is a good representation of it. And from those three three letter roots, he he constructs these sort of three lines of interpretation, which seem to go, I would think, sort of past, present, future. So there's a coherence to the message. It's talking initially about what God has uh, done in in the the past, uh, and then in the next line in verse 27, moving it to um, the second person and and to the present in terms of what sort of is going to happen to Belshazzar. He has been um, weighed and and then I guess a judgment as to what's going to happen in the future in in the next line. So there's some sort of three lines with past, present, and future, and each line seems to have three um, aspects to it. There's a statement of the weight, the mina or the shekel or, or, or the perez, and then a, a kind of first interpretation of it. So God has numbered the days of your kingdom um and then a i guess you might say like a, a second interpretation of, of that same uh thought or even of the same uh continents so sort of menai interpretation one god has numbered the days of your kingdom uh interpretation two god has brought it to an end and then the same for tekel and and the same for um for perez and I think it's it's relatively clear to see, isn't it, that in the last line that um, Persian is pretty similar to Parsin, and so um, it's it starts to become evident as you work through this that each line contains basically two different interpretations of the same set of consonants. So, from this series of three um, weights. Daniel generates three different three-part sentences. And again, I imagine this just would have the ring of of correctness um, uh, about it. You, you know when you've heard a good solution to a, a riddle, don't you? It, it just makes, makes sense. Um, and I, I think the elegance of this solution w- would have appealed to people. A lot of the book of Daniel has repeated themes of gold and various metals and materials. And so it might be fitting to have a form of judgment that focuses upon the measurement of things. Mm, yeah. So uh, right. yeah. going back to your comments, James, is are you, are you saying that like in verse 26, let's take the first interpretation, Mene, that's Mina, that's the, that's the measure, uh, that's, the, um, that's the weight. Um, and the phrase God is numbered is some transformation of that word, Mina, and then put an end is again a transformation of that word. Is it is he is he kind of deriving different forms of the word or doing puns of the words? Uh, is it something he or is something he's uh, extrapolating from the idea of a weight to something else, or is it all kind of rooted in the basic term that uh, appears on the wall? I, I think it's all rooted in the, the basic term. So. Um so as you say, first the the statement is um, uh, uh, first the, the the weight is given. So mina. So the three consonants are interpreted as a, as a noun. Um, in the next statement, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Um, the same three letters are are interpreted 
as a verb. So um, literally you have menai as the statement, and then you have menar elacha malchutach. So that's God has menard um, your kingdom. God has numbered it or, or perhaps weighed it in some way. And I, I would translate the last term. It's often translated as has brought it to an end. I would translate that as God has handed it over um, and a number of other translators have, have suggested that. That's not my um, idea. But that is an alternative sense of, of exactly the same um, set of consonants. So um, uh, the consonants M, N, let's say Aleph, um, can have this sense of, of handing over or um, in entrusting something. I mean, possibly because there just was a connection between weighing something and and handing something over to someone it, it may the etymology might have arisen like that but um but yeah i i think all these things the um uh the the noun interpretation of it the weight then the verbal interpretation of it and then the slightly further removed interpretation of it um all, all come from the same basic three letters yeah uh, on that last phrase uh walters again um has suggested that it, you know, he's translated as something like pay out, entrusted to, but uh, he's uh, he he goes to uh, passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah where different nations are rewarded by God, by, uh, by the gift of another nation. So um, here Persia would be rewarded for their, for accomplishing the work that God has given them to do in conquering Babylon by being given Babylon. It's a payment out to them, but also, a sense of repayment because it's a it's a retribution for the abuses and the sins of Babylon. So you have that double meaning of of payout at the end. Hmm. Right. And James, do you remember any of the numerological stuff that you've talked about from the inscription? Yeah, I mean, th- there are a whole uh, a whole host of interesting numerological properties of the particular characters that um, that Daniel uses. Um, I mean, one of them is that um, Daniel's interpretation consists of 91 letters, and then the particular weights which are mentioned um, sum to 91 shekels. So Amina would be uh, 60 shekels. Uh, Tekel is another word for shekel, so it's one. And then Peris is a half um, Mina. It comes from this root to, to split in two. And so the number 91 emerges from that and has all sorts of um, interesting uh, connections then. Um, the word ha- Elohim um, has the gematrial value 91, as does um, the Aramaic Malkar. King has a gematrial value of, of 19. And as you work through this sort of three by three grid, it's got all sorts of fascinating um numerological properties and i mean if i'm right in some of that it would seem almost as if this isn't just a riddle that's being solved by daniel in its historical context but there's almost a riddle being presented to the reader um because these are properties which i guess wouldn't have been clear to anyone listening to what's going on but which are kind of made present to us as readers of scripture as if we've been kind of brought into the riddle and being asked to 
think about it and solve certain things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that there's a, I think Jordan has suggested there might be some kind of allegorical correspondences between the different weights and different characters that are in, in view here. So Amina is 50 or 60 shekels. Is that right? And then a, a obviously. Yeah. 16. Yeah. A shekel is obviously one fiftieth or one sixtieth of that. And a Paris is a, um, a half Mina. So he suggested something like Mina is the, the number of the kingdom of Babylon, maybe associated particularly with the, the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is the uh, weightless <laughs> shekel that's, that doesn't have the weightiness to bear the, the, bear the kingdom, the, the uh, Mina kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's divided out in a double, it's a plural, so it's Ufarsin, that's two Paris, which means two half Minas. But uh, the the kingdom that's capable of carrying on the this uh, the the weight the weight of this kingdom is this double kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Um, does that kind of allegorical take on it fit with what you're saying, or do you think that's uh, that that doesn't exactly work? Oh, I I, I like that that a lot. I mean, it, especially the way in which the the two pronged kingdoms, if they're each uh, sorry, the two pronged kingdom, if each ruler of it is thought of as a peris, then it, it would be sort of the right weight to to take things forward. And it feels natural enough to associate people with weight, doesn't it, in terms of their gravitas. You know, you, you would describe someone as a, as a man of weight, you know, a, a man of dignity. And you even have this, um, uh, Daniel has spoken about the glory um, due to Nebuchadnezzar initially back in, um, where is it, verse um, 18. And and that term, at least in Hebrew, um, glory has the sense of, of weightiness and and heaviness um, underlying it. And so to, to kind of quantify the glory of a man in terms of his weight we, we, seems natural to me. It doesn't seem a stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole thing is, James, is set up with this kind of uh, weights and measures scenario. Uh, you mentioned the the uh, idea that the lampstand is kind of resembles a scale. And I know you've also made an astronomical, astrological connection. So this is taking place at the time of the year when the constellation um, Libra, the scales, is going to be rising in the – or the sun is going to be rising through Libra. So is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Libra obviously means scales, but the the Babylonian term for it is just the the equivalent of scales, and so it has exactly the same um, symbolism in the Babylonian world as it does as, as we know it today by its sort of yeah Indo-European terms. Also, wonder if there's any significance to the fact that the number ninety-one is a quarter of the year. Hmm, I like that. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about your question earlier, um, Alistair, the significance of writing. And I was thinking about the fact that it's um, initially in verse 5 said to be written on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And um, this term plaster, in, in at least in Hebrew and, and some other languages, often doubles up as, as a, a word for dust and things which are kind of things which have been and crushed down and and so the um even the hebrew afar uh, dust can be translated plaster sometimes and if you think about that then the idea of writing in in the dust feels like it's something quite 
significant. I think it, does Jeremiah uses use that um, exactly that names being written in in the dust um, certainly reminds you of, of Jesus as he bends down to um, write. And so, also in the test of jealousy, there's dust from the tabernacle floor along with the right handwriting. Of course, yes, yeah, it's even even dissolved off, isn't it? Has has that idea of being crushed, being crushed down? Um, so even the manner of the writing would you could connect with judgment, couldn't you? Yeah, right. Yeah, an assessment. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the jealousy test is an assessment of guilt, which is uh, part of what's going on here. I mean, I want, uh, maybe a final comment. I think about uh, the implications of this for hermeneutics, and you can kind—I of, know—you can might be able to spin out an allegory. There's some difficult passage in scripture. All of the PhDs and the uh, tenured professors come out, and they can't make head or tail of the uh, in, uh, of this passage of scripture. But then somebody comes out who has the has the spirit, an extraordinary spirit, a spirit of the Holy God in them. Uh, and they're able to unravel this riddle, untie this knot that nobody else can untie, and they do it. I, I guess that's that's a, a somewhat uh, that's a somewhat tongue-in-cheek description of uh, you know an outsider's in, uh, outsider uh, outside the academy possibility of insightful interpretation. But I think the, the the more serious point is that the kind of thing that Daniel seems to be doing with this inscription, that is to say, uh, seeing within a single word a series of transformations that yield a meaning, recognizing there's, there's a, there's certain sort of puns going on and that the meaning of that inscription is actually arising from the play that he has. I don't, I don't mean play to belittle it. I mean, the it's a very serious play, but the play that he makes with the words that are on the, on the wall, I think that gives us some kind of insight into the process. I mean, if that's the way that uh, this, this puzzling inscription is being interpreted within the story, then that sets up some kind of model for us to think about how to interpret the puzzling things that we find on the page. Uh, and it may be that we want to run through similar kinds of operations of what Daniel seems to be doing here, uh, even if they seem don't seem to don't seem to uh, follow the rules and the instructions of the hermeneutical Chaldeans that uh, that uh, teach how to interpret the Bible. There's there's a kind of uh, play with the play with the language of Scripture that yields the proper interpretation. I think the other thing about that approach is that when you hear the interpretation and see it unpacked and the different levels on which it's operating, there is a demonstration of its truth just within the satisfactory or the satisfying character of the interpretation. There's something about it that just fits and feels right. And in the same way with a good interpretation of biblical text more generally, if you interpret it well, there should be that feeling of satisfaction that this fits. Um, there's an appropriateness to the interpretation that feels that it's honoring the text. It's not contorting the text. It's not ignoring certain details. It's not neglecting or um, twisting. It's something that seems to be married to the text and drawing out of the text something that is satisfying and um, revelatory within it that it's like solving some puzzle that you can have one of these big puzzle boxes or something that you have to open up and as you open it up the recognition that you've solved the puzzle is seen in the opening up um, and in the same way with the scriptural text when we 
have a good interpretation. There is that sense of the text unfolding to us. I, I think that's a great point. It's, it's, how often has that happened to you when like, you've read a passage and you think you've got a basic sense of it, but you've got all these loose ends that you can't quite make sense of or tie up, and then you read someone's exegesis of it and it just has, as you're saying, Alistair, it has that ring to it of authenticity and that this was what the author meant because it suddenly makes sense of all these loose ends and, and things start to come together and and yeah good exegesis is is exactly like that isn't it and yet it kind of reveals the brilliance of scripture because it's not like we're stuck with this riddle and we can make no sense of it at all until we've got all these layers and this comprehensive interpretation that does the whole lot of it you know you you can we we could read and exegete this passage to a you know a Sunday school of young children and um, make the same basic points. You know you, you can just reading it through. You can get the gist of it and and then the the extra layers of it um, are, are sort of they're like a Russian doll, aren't they? They're they're opening up extra layers, but consistent with the obvious face value interpretation of the thing so it's not like gnosticism um it's not like suddenly there's a new slant once you've solved the riddle rather the riddle aspect of it is just kind of showing you extra depth which is consistent um with what you've already understood thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.